You Can Mentor is a podcast about the power of building relationships with kids from hard places in the name of Jesus. Every episode will help you overcome common mentoring obstacles and give you the confidence you need to invest in the lives of others. You Can Mentor. What's up, mentor and mentoring leaders? Wanted to share with you guys some exciting information we got. You Can Mentor has released a book. It's entitled, You Can Mentor, How to Impact Your Community, Fulfill the Great Commission, and Break Generational Curses. The purpose behind this book is to train up more mentors and more mentoring leaders to effectively disciple the next generation through mentoring. If you will, please go purchase a book on our website. You can find it on Amazon. If you go to Amazon, leave a five-star review that helps us out a ton. If you're a mentoring organization and you want multiple copies, holler at us and we will give you guys a deal. You can find out more information on the You Can Mentor website. Go pick up that book, You Can Mentor. Mentors, we love to see you win. So we've got a two-part crash course series on setting expectations that lead to life in your mentoring relationship. Today, we're talking about making expectations realistic. We hope something you hear today encourages you. And if it does, we'd love to hear about it. Leave a review, rate this podcast, and share it with someone you want to talk about it with. Thanks for listening. You can mentor. Welcome back, everybody. This is You Can Mentor. My name is Beth Winter, and I'm here with my co-host today, Stephen Murray. That was great. That was very inviting. I want to. I want to listen more. Keep going. <laughs> Are you not going to introduce yourself? Hello, everyone. Okay. Welcome, Stephen. How does it feel to be sitting on the other side of the table? This This is fantastic. All the pressure is off of me and onto you, which is great. It's great. I am just sweating over here with the pressure, so I'm glad you're having a good time. You're doing great. <laughs> Today, we're talking about expectations, and we've come up with three things that we think are important for expectations for your mentee. Expectations, we're going to talk about, they need to be realistic, reaching, and relational. Wow. Three R's. The re the re's the re's are in right now. Yeah, recycling the re refurbished. Did you forget the other environmental R's? Redesigned, re reuse, reuse. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know the last one. Reputation. That sounds yeah. That's different, right? Katie's gonna be disappointed. <laughs> Keep going. So Beth, why are we talking about expectations? expectations are always there whether you recognize you have them or not and so when you have unrecognized expectations that can lead to some problem areas in your relationships and so it's better to think about what they are up front and recognize are these realistic what is a good expectation what's an unfair expectation and how do we help our mentees reach those that's good so you're saying you're saying that everyone's walking in with expectations just not everyone knows that they are <laughs> Right. And sometimes you don't know you have an expectation until it's not met. And when you're going home frustrated, whether you're the kid or the mentor, that's when you realize, oh, I had an expectation that wasn't being met. Yes. Sometimes, it's not always phrased like that, though. It's usually like a little more honest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Less PC. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
with my mentee. He's driving now, and we've started meeting up. And so I'll tell him, hey, 8 o'clock, breakfast tacos, this place. Sometimes that text message comes at 7 a.m. Sometimes it comes a few days before. It, it, it inevitably does get to him, and he says, okay, I'm in. Thanks. See you there. Something like that. Usually, See you there is the longest text messages I've ever received from, from my mentee. I'm joking. But there are sometimes he shows up on time. There are sometimes he shows up five minutes late. There are sometimes he shows up 30 minutes late. Mm. When we started meeting, he was consistently 15 minutes late. And I just had this thought in my head that I say breakfast tacos at 8 and he leaves his house at 8 a.m. Mm. And maybe that was in his head or maybe that wasn't in his head. He was just historically late to things. I never mentioned it to him for the first three or four times that it happened. I didn't say anything. I was just, I was that guy. Mm -hmm. You know people like that. that Yes, I know you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm working on it. Well, anyways, I I assumed that it would would resolve itself, Mm. that he would figure it out or he would realize that I was always there waiting for him that the tacos were already ready for him when he showed up, all that stuff. Mm. And I finally realized, it's like, I don't think I've said anything about, hey, you need to show up on time when we do this thing. But there's another thing, like if he shows up three or five minutes late, I've had this feeling of like, should I say something? Mm. Or is it is it not that big of a deal? And so I, I always usually tend to lean toward it's not that big of a deal. And I don't know... I think I wonder if seven minutes is like my threshold where I'm like, okay, I, I need to say something about this. What's your threshold for lateness? It's probably like 30 seconds. Yeah, I'm pretty timely. I'm definitely <laughs> in the category of if you're not early, you're late. <laughs> so you're already mad about this podcast <laughs> starting 10 minutes late. I'm, I'm, I have not looked at the clock for a reason. <laughs> but anyways, I, there was an expectation that I had. Yeah. He was not meeting it, but I did not communicate it. Right. And that was affecting me, but it was also not helping him. And so I think that, that that's that's the story that comes to mind. Now, this morning when I met with him, guess who showed up 10 minutes late? You did. It was me. And that's not fun when mm-hmm. you've just had all of these hard conversations with your mentee about, hey, I expect you to show up on time when we meet together. And then you show up 10 minutes late. Did he call you on it? He did not, but I did apologize. And yeah, hopefully next time he sits me down and has a hard conversation. Yeah. Now, I also have a (laughs) one-year-old, but based off of our last conversation about excuses, Mm. I don't think that I should throw Ben under the bus in this circumstance. So I did apologize. That's a good move on your part. But yeah, that's a good, I mean, asking him to be on time is a little more realistic than asking a... 10 year old to have timeliness and show up to things and so <laughs> there is a threshold of at what at what point Where can I start you? expecting these things <laughs> <laughs> but really that's important and that's why realistic is our first point and I'm 32 years old and I was 10 minutes late <laughs> it's okay I'm sorry everybody has everybody has their challenges Stephen. thank you Beth thank you we've just got to be realistic about that <laughs> one for you <laughs> 
Okay, so realistic. Expectations need to be realistic for the kid to accomplish. Realistic for the stage that they are in physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually in their development. So these are going to be different for every kid, but there are some general like milestones that kids kind of go through as a group in their age development. I love that. My first look at realistic means give them a break, but mm. this is like really just have perspective. It's yeah. not it's not just give them a break, like let them off the hook. It's more rooted in understanding where they're at developmentally and how that should influence your expectation. Right. Yeah. And when we don't have expectations that fit the kid where they are at in the stage of development that they're at, we're both going to leave frustrated probably from that situation. So for instance, if I expect a kindergartner to be able to sit through a lecture that I am giving on the difference between jealousy and hope or something like that, it, they're going to be paying attention for a maximum of five minutes. Even if it's cucumbers and pickles, it doesn't have to be <laughs> some crazy, yeah, some crazy abstract about? emotion. Yeah. Yeah. But really like if, if I expect them to be able to sit still and listen with their mouth shut, the whole time that is just setting me up for frustration at the end of the day because it's not realistic for where they're at. It's good for me to know that. So let, let I mean, let's walk through some maybe unrealistic expectations that we might have of a kindergartner. You just said one, mm -hmm. sit, making them sit down and pay attention to a sermon or yeah. a teaching may not be, may not be a realistic expectation. What else? At that age, really between kindergarten through second grade they're going to have their emotions are going to be really tied to their physical state so i i remember whenever emotions tied to their physical yes. state so that whenever i was a coach for under mentorings after school program i remember one day looking at this kid who was in first grade and he was just crying and i was like oh my gosh something major must have happened at school today and so i pulled him aside and i am just prepared to have this talk about bullying or you know failing a test or something and whenever he finally calmed down enough to tell me what was going on he just said I'm just tired <laughs> <laughs> and I was just looking at him like that was a lot of emotion for just tired what wow. on earth and it just I mean I haven't been a first grader in a long time so I I haven't been in that place but for a first grader for a kindergartner for a second grader they're their sleep, how tired they are, can have a, a direct, dramatic impact to the emotions that they're going to feel that day. So there might be more outbursts of tears or outbursts of anger based on, are they hungry? Are they tired? How are they feeling that day? I'm trying to think if I'm like that. <laughs> Do you get hangry? <laughs> I mean, it makes, it makes perfect sense. And even just, you can recognize how much like after recess, mm -hmm. how difficult it is for our kids to engage, either because they're tired or they're the transition between physical activity to mind work or, or whatever it is, mm -hmm. that transition really does probably influence our expectations of their behavior. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've talked to a lot of parents who when they get a behavior, a negative behavior report, 
from their kid at program that day or even just them at home, they're struggling with their kid's behavior when they get home from school. I've had some parents say to me, like, I don't know what the deal is because he doesn't get these reports at school. I don't know what the difference is. And in reality, it might not be that, you know, you're doing anything wrong or there's a reason based on the environment or anything. It might just be the kid just sat through school for eight hours and now he's tired. And that's when you get him at the end of the day. And so by the time he's coming home or going to program, he just might be spent. Like he might not have the physical capacity to process his emotions in a put together way at the end of the day or sit through another lesson or a devotional or whatever it is you're trying to do with him. Doesn't mean you're not engaging or you're not good with your kid or something like that. It it just is there is a limit for them. That's that's really good to know. Talk about a K through second graders control of their body because I <laughs> it just seems like obviously we've all been to a little kids soccer game where they're all running together and learning that oh when I hit people it hurts me and it also might hurt them mm. like. Yeah. What what are what are our unrealistic expectations about behavior? Yeah. As it relates to their control of their own person. Like mm-hmm. they barely even know that they're a person. <laughs> yeah. So, I think two things are going on there. One, kids at that age haven't developed fine motor skills or coordination to, you know, the full extent yet. And so the gross motor skills are there. They can flail their limbs around, but they're not gross necessarily Gross motor skills? Yes, that's like your your limbs, like your legs, your arms, like the bigger movements versus the fine motor skills is like holding a pencil, like the more intricate details of movement. So if you've ever seen a kindergartner outside playing with other kids, they're pretty good at moving around, but they are also egocentric at that age. And so the development to think about how their actions may impact another person is not fully there yet. And that's not a deficiency of their moral compass or anything like that. That's just the stage that God made it that way of that's where they're at. So there is a lot of times when a kid may be just in their own world, not thinking about how them flailing their arm around and smacking the kid in the face next to them impacted that kid. They're just thinking, I was trying to catch the ball. Yeah. I didn't even see you standing there, you know? So. Have you ever tripped a kid before? On purpose? Yes. No. (laughs) Have you? <laughs> well, I didn't mean to confess, but <clears throat> it's like the your cousin is running past the oh, table that okay, you're sitting yeah, yeah. at, and you have this instinctual thought to like trip them. Yeah. And then you do, and you instantly feel remorse because you're like, I'm a horrible person. Mm. That horrible person feeling might not completely be developed right. yet in this child. He just might have thought of doing it. and Like, what would happen if I did that? <laughs> yeah. Which is yeah. the exact same thing that I do. Well, and I don't do that often. <laughs> Are we learning that you're not at the stage of development you should be at? <laughs> I feel like you have unrealistic expectations of me. No, but I'm a sinner. And so I, I remember a time doing that and I was just like, what in the world am I doing? Mm-hmm. And that thought, which I guess you would say is a conscience, is that a good a good way to describe that is saying... When you're saying egocentric, mm-hmm. are you saying that we are not considering the thoughts and feelings of others right. in how mm-hmm. we're acting? Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. So would remorse be something that a kid probably doesn't feel when they're this young? And that's why we say, hey, you need to say you're sorry. And they're like, sorry. 
but they don't even know what that means. Yeah, I would, I think one, it's a, these are all general things. And so you might know a kid who is just extremely, extremely empathetic and this doesn't really apply to him. But the general thing is, yes, like a kid might apologize for that because he was told to. And kids at this age, they, they revere the rules. And so they want to follow the rules so that they don't get in trouble. But they may not fully have processed and come to like a personal conclusion of, oh, wow, when I did that, this is probably what it made that person feel. And in response, who do I want to be? Is that what I want to be known for? No, that is not who I want to be known for. So I'm going to apologize. And tomorrow I'm going to choose to be the, you know, they're not going through all that. Mm -hmm. They're just honestly trying to get through the day and get back to a, a good place. And so if I did something wrong, this is what I do to fix it. I apologize. Now I'm back to the good place with my parent or with my coach, my teacher, whatever. But there's not necessarily going to be that deep thinking yet. Yeah. But the, the standard is realistic, but them fulfilling the standard may be unrealistic. So I, I think in my head, say there's this rule, hey, don't trip other kids. Yeah. That is a realistic expectation. Mm -hmm. But if a kid trips another kid, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a reason that that rule exists for the safety of kids. Yeah. You shouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. But it may be unrealistic to expect all of the kids to abide by it. Right. Because there, the reason it's up there is because it's happening. Mm-hmm. And so does that make sense? That yeah. Because they're, yeah. they're not thinking about their actions. The rule is realistic, but them following it perfectly is unrealistic. Right. Yeah. The rules are setting up, and we'll get into this, but they are setting up the reaching that we want our kids to have. And like, I may not be able to do this perfectly right now, but I am reaching to get to where I can do that. But yeah, it's there has to be a grace of understanding that just because I say that this is the rule doesn't mean that this kid realistically is going to be able to get it right every single time. So let's move to third and fourth grade. Do you still have this temptation to trip people in? No, I'm just kidding. Let's, move. <laughs> let's get away from the tripping scenario. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Help me. What What are some unrealistic expectations or what leads to unrealistic expectations of third and fourth graders because we just don't know where they're at developmentally? Yeah. Well, the biggest thing, so at our after school program, we have a coach designated for third and fourth graders. And I always tell the coach who's going to be in that classroom. And I think about strategically who I want to put in that classroom because I know that will be the loudest group. Like that will be the most energetic off the walls group because where they are at development developmentally they are just going to be high energy and I think it would be easy to walk by a classroom see kids just cannot sit still so restless want to be moving want to be doing something with their hands and think like oh my gosh like do all of these kids have like an attention issue or something but really that's just where they're at and that that's just kids being kids and there has to just be an understanding for that so High energy is definitely the thing that stands out to me the most about that age group. But it, the the temptation is to put this expectation of calmness and yeah togetherness well, and yeah. orderliness that yes. may be preventing that developmental stage from actually going its course. Yeah, I think it's easy to think this kid has been in school 
learning the rules since he was in kindergarten. He's in third or fourth grade now. He should know better. But really, like his, he's growing up. There's things happening in his body, in his brain that are changing. And he's actually just experiencing a lot more energy than he had when he was younger. Like kindergartners go through high energy swings where they will be super energetic and then they just crash and they literally need a nap time. But third and fourth graders, it's high energy all day long. They can just keep going. And so even though they've been in school, they know the rules. There are some limits to they just need to move. <laughs> Would you say that third and fourth graders are the ones that drive us the most insane? <laughs> As adults. I mean... I know that's probably relative. I think it is really probably relative. Probably some people that hate babies. <laughs> yes, there are some people who do. Yeah, I think it really depends because I've seen some people that just naturally are a lot better with the high emotions of the younger kids and just really take to that nurturing role. And then there are some people who are really drawn to the third and fourth graders because they're like, yeah, let's have fun all day and like take everything to the max and then there are some people who are better with the older kids because they want to dive deeper into conversation and a fifth grader is way better at holding a conversation with you than a second grader so I think it kind of varies on what you expect you yeah. expectations so I mean, this brings me to a question just pan out a little bit that's what happens when a camera <laughs> does this motion with my hands I don't know how to explain it Zoom out. Zoom out. Is that there better? We go. Yeah. There you go. You look at the forest. Wow. Mentors, should they attempt to match the behavior of their mentees in order to kind of confront these expectations that they may have? Mm. And so if you're a, I don't know, what's the chill Enneagram? <laughs> a nine. A nine? Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's Enneagram or if you're the introvert, but your yeah, kid is temperament, e extroverted yeah. or something. Maybe your expectation is related to your own temperament and not theirs. Mm. At the same developmentally, and so would you say it's best for mentors to match their mentee's behavior? I, I don't think that has to be a factor personally. I mean, I think. A mentorship should be about learning and so not just for the mentee to learn from you but also for you to learn from them and so I think that there can be a lot of really great like push and pull there in that relationship and I know when like one of my mentors was the most chill patient just like put a cup of tea on kind of like let's just take it slow and process everything kind of person and I would get so frustrated with him because I would go in there and be like here's what's going on. Let's develop a course of action and let's go figure it out right now. And I want to fix this. And he'd be like, let's instead take 20 minutes to just sit in silence and hear from the Lord. And I'd be like, what? No, like you're wise. You probably already know what to do. Let's just figure it out right now. And so that was a really good experience for me to learn from somebody who I had a hard time relating to the way that he did life. And so that was a growing thing for me. And so I think it can be really great to be with somebody who's your total opposite that is a great answer <laughs> so i mean his piece was confronting your chaos yeah. and and so mentors can match the chaos and just run around go crazy and normalize mm -hmm. their their behavior as a child who is wanting to play totally but then also you can provide contrast of stability and because i've seen mentors do that where they 
they are just themselves. They're not trying to be someone yeah. else. And I think that that's really powerful to, to witness because I think there are some temptations to, to change who you are yeah. to be a mentor. Yeah. And you don't necessarily have to do that. Yeah. I think it just ultimately comes down to a humility to want to understand the kid and not make them like you, but just understand who God made them to be and help them grow into that. And it's not about making them understand you. It's about you understanding them and helping them become who they were made to be. That's good. Okay, zoom back in. Okay. Wow. That was great. <laughs> great sound effects. <laughs> Where are we at? We are, are we at fifth? Are we, are we getting to middle school? We are. Well, we're, we're getting there. Okay. Fifth through eighth grade. It's a really big group of kids there. I, th- I think it makes sense, though, because fifth graders are really different than third graders. Yes. And for some reason, they're in the same school. Yeah. Most of the time. Sixth graders are in the same school, too, at least here in Dallas. So Isn't that weird? Yeah, it wasn't like that where I grew up. It separated at fifth grade. But yeah, like our sixth graders, I frequently have conversations with them where they know that they are at a different place developmentally and they are honestly annoyed <laughs> with the kids younger than them all the time because, you know, we're all in the same, they're all in the same program together mm-hmm. and they have, you know, they can respond to a correction the first time and like they've got it together. They understand the rules. They know how to self-regulate. Meanwhile, there's a kid right next to them just just all over the place like laying on the floor and coaches like trying to get them up in their chair like three times and everybody's just waiting on this kid and the sixth graders just looking at him like come on I want to go to recess and we're all waiting on you has anyone talked to these sixth graders about the unrealistic expectations <laughs> they have of kindergartners I'll, I'll send them this podcast that's yeah, great <laughs> yeah but yeah that, that happens because at this stage these kids are starting to think more like adults it they don't require as much moment by moment direction. They they know kind of the way things go. They know the rights and wrongs for the most part. And they're starting to think critically about some of those things for themselves and even question some of the rules. Like it is so typical and normal for kids in this age to be like, yeah, I know that is the rule, but why is that the rule? And does it have to stay that way? Mm. So, and that's not necessarily like defiance, they are really just exercising new parts of their brain that weren't getting to, you know, step on the court before. So it's a good thing for them to start thinking like that. And I know a lot of kids ask the question, why? Like you're, you're saying that at this stage, they're, they're kind of confronting authority. They're not just trying to understand. They're like, why? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I, I learned quickly when I started working with fifth and sixth grade specifically, that I need to be really good at having a reason for everything that I do. I need to be able to explain to a kid why I am asking him to not wear his hat inside the program or, you know, something as simple as that. He's going to ask me, why is that a rule? And I can't just say, because it's a rule. I mean, I could say that, but he really wants to know. That's most of what people say is like, because I'm an adult. Right. Yeah, and th- like there's there's fairness to that of just needing to respect the authority of the adults. But I also think it's more, personally, I think it's more helpful for you to help them see why you came to that conclusion. So, because they really do want to know. So why can't they wear hats? Well, that's a great question, Stephen. <laughs> that, is that how you respond? You start there. That's a great question. That's, you validate the question. Yes. It's good. I, I honestly don't know the answer to that one. <laughs> Would you tell them that? 
if you didn't know? If I didn't know, I, I probably would tell them that. I would say, that's a great question. I think I'll think about that too. And if we decide that is a rule that doesn't have to be a rule, you'll be the first to know. That is a great response. <laughs> now take your hat off. <laughs> well, the reason, like a lot of our kids, they like to pull their hoods up all the way and then they end up inevitably like laying on the table and like wanting to sleep instead of paying attention. So what we've explained is it, the hoods especially go in hand in hand with the hat. So we just eliminate it all together and it's about participating and it feels like you're not wanting to participate whenever you've got your hood up, you've got your headphones on and you're like very obviously trying to not engage. Mm -hmm. So that's, th that's what's coming to me <laughs> of that's why good. we had that rule. That's good, Beth. It's a great example. Kids are usually open books, but mm. this is a stage where you kind of start guarding information. And yeah. so talk about expectations for privacy and just sharing in general. Yeah. Yeah. I remember even in my own life, I don't know that there was a specific day that I was like, I want to be able to close my door. But <laughs> I remember that being a fight with my parents because they had like an open door policy. And but I think that there is just at some point there's this transition where you wanted your parents involved in everything. You sought them out for everything to all of a sudden you're like, I'm my own person and I want to have some things that are just mine. I don't necessarily want to tell my mom every single thing that happened or my friend said or that I thought about or did. And that's not I think when we think of a kid wanting privacy, there's automatically for mentors and parents a lot of fear that comes up with that of, well, you wouldn't want to be hiding part of your life unless you were doing something you weren't supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't think that that is a fair thing to assume because even in our own lives, like boundaries are really healthy and kids have to start developing those at some point. And, you know, the longer you practice something, the better you're going to get at it. And so if we teach kids healthy boundaries by the time they're adults they're gonna have way less problems at knowing what are the things that you don't owe to tell other people or share with everyone and what are the things that are really good to let other people in on hmm. for mentors usually asking questions is the way that they prove their interest hmm. in a child yeah but if a child isn't sharing can feel like the child's the reason i can't show him that I'm interested. Mm. And so what would be your encouragement to that mentor who, who feels that? Yeah, I think, again, it's just, I would want to encourage you that it is not a symptom that you're doing something wrong. And that's why I think there is a lot of freedom in just understanding where kids are at developmentally, because that is a totally normal thing. Like there is a kid in our program I can think of right now who, for whatever reason, he like I could ask him what's your favorite color and instead of telling me his favorite color he'll say I don't have to tell you that and there's a part of me that wants to be like why wouldn't you <laughs> do you not trust me to know your favorite color but you know for him it's like I, this is something that I have that an adult doesn't have to they don't have they don't get to tell me to give it to them and I want to hold on to this and so for that kid it might just be him exercising control over what he may feel like is the only thing he has, which is his thoughts and opinions. And it doesn't have to indicate that he doesn't trust you or that he doesn't even want you to be in his life. It, it doesn't mean that, but it's just that kid exercising some authority that he might be feeling for the first time. Yeah. I, well, I, 
I'm very interested in that, this dynamic, because there are some kind of just natural possible survival coping mechanisms in not sharing information where mm-hmm. possibly in this season of life, information's being used against you. Yeah. Like I remember when I was in seventh grade and I told somebody I was dating somebody mm-hmm. and I wasn't dating them. I was just acting like I was. Yeah. Then word got out about it at school <sighs> and this girl was like, I'm not dating you. Oh, that's tough. And I was like, Ugh! and so you inevitably get to this place where you're like, if I share information, it could be used against me, mm-hmm. which we're all living in that world now. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah. But fifth and eighth graders are in that world as well. Yeah. And feel a lot of social pressure. But then the other side of it is that maybe people close to them have feigned interest mm-hmm. in their life, but have more just been using it yeah. and using them to probably prove a sense of love or affection or earn um, a place in their life that maybe they haven't earned. Yeah. And so as a mentor, that's kind of what you're doing. You're trying to earn a place in their life as quickly as you can. And maybe it's going to take some time for you to actually prove that you're a person that's trustworthy and is worth sharing Mm -hmm. with. And is it going to use that information against you? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And so like, unfortunately, I feel like the best encouragement I have is to just be patient and stay the course because whether it is that or it's just the stage of development, I mean, I can think there's like all these memes out there I've seen of, you know, thinking back to when you were a kid and you're like, oh, my mom's calling, like, oh, I'm going to hang up. I'm not going to answer. And then now, like, as an adult being like calling your mom and being sad if she has plans and like, what? You don't want to talk to me? I want to talk to you. I need to process this. And so the kid will come around eventually if you are a person who is worthy to come around to and Mm -hmm. you just keep building that trust and keep pursuing them but also just respect where they're at you know i i talked to that boy about the favorite color deal and he told me that he just wasn't ready to commit to (laughs) to a single color wow in that moment and so he he says he's sorry that's great to hear (laughs) (laughs) okay are we moving into high school now Yes, let's do it. High school. Well, we should just expect everything from high school students, right? <laughs> I mean, clearly they're in adulthood. Ninth, ninth, tenth grade, they should be getting jobs, right? Yeah, if you can drive, that's it, right? Yep. You're done growing. You've learned everything like you need to learn. Like your brain's fully, it's good, right? No. <laughs> no, no, no. Is um, my brain done? Uh, you're the brain person. Is my brain done doing its thing? Well... I think all the the big parts of your brain you can should just be say yes or no. Okay, okay. It's not yes <laughs> or no. I mean like like the major things should be set, but your neurons are still rewiring every moment of your life. And so even for you, Stephen, at the age you're at, there is there's hope for you. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so encouraged. I think. Okay, talk talk to us. What unrealistic expectations do we have of high school students? The number one thing on my list is about the amount of food they consume and the amount of sleep that they require. And the minimal <laughs> amount of gratitude they, ex- they, they communicate. I mean, <laughs> you know. But really, like, high school kids are growing rapidly. 
And so that requires a lot of fuel. So it is totally normal for your teenager to clean out the pantry and eat literally everything. <laughs> so that's a thing. Like they, they're burning more calories. Yeah. I guess that makes sense because you, you're bigger. It's, yeah, it's a growth spurt and that's got to be fueled by something. And so I've never eating a lot, that. sleeping a lot, that's what they need. They're not lazy. <laughs> they need to sleep more? Yes. Isn't that interesting? Because you think back to the kindergarten, and it's basically they're going through this process of kind of going back to that state where there's energy highs and energy lows. They need a lot of food. That's that's kindergarten. Extra snack time, nap time. We're back there with, with the high school. Do we need high school nap times now? What has our country become? <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm, I have unrealistic expectations. Yeah. I'll work on it. That's why you're the co-host on this one. <laughs> Freaking Gen Z. Some other things, though. That's a good point, by the way, that we, we all have unrealistic, unrealistic expectations of people from different generations than us. Mm. It's not just those younger than us. It's also those older than us. That's true. I think that's a separate. Is that part two? Are we? <laughs> yes, we should. We should. I didn't have notes on what development what unrealistic expectations do we have of boomers? <laughs> Great. I'll work on that one. Kids at this age, though, you you can expect that they're going to be more coordinated. They're going to be a little more... I don't know. That wasn't true for me. My basketball coach told me I was as coordinated as a three-legged <laughs> cow. Okay. <laughs> Once again, I feel like this podcast has turned into realizing you had some development but delays. Was that... Was that <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think he had unrealistic expectations of me, if I'm honest. Mm. Was it was it giving you a reachable goal? I mean, he he gave me twenty seconds in the fourth quarter when we were up by ten points or more. So I I don't know. Right. I'll, I'll get back to well, you. On let's that. process that after. <laughs> <laughs> okay, keep going. I'm sorry. Expectations for high schoolers. You can expect that at this age, there's going to be more arguments, honestly, mm. because. They're thinking for themselves. They may not have, they're, they're going to have a little bit more of that long-term planning, but they're not going to have all the wisdom that comes with the long-term planning that somebody like their parent or their mentor might be able to have. And so there's going to be more of this pushback of, you don't know me, like I know what's best for me and them thinking through things, but it, it isn't necessarily going to come with all the picture that you can see. And so the, in that fight for their independence and that's a good thing for them to want to be independent. There's probably going to be a little more friction in them wanting to assert, I can make decisions. I can trust myself. And that stems from a really good thing because that identity development is so key during this stage. And it's really setting in during that those grades. So it's a good thing that just needs to be kind of put on the, what are those those things called whenever you're bowling and you're really bad at it? Bumpers. Yes, it needs the bumpers of how to how to make it still a good relationship mm -hmm. in that. That's good. I have no more thoughts or anecdotal <laughs> comments. Great. Though I did experience the depression that you put on here. Go through a period of sadness or depression temporarily. Yeah. I experienced that. I think knowing that Honestly, there's just such a mass reconstruction of the brain kind of in the, I think it starts around 12 and goes to around 14 or 15, it, that it just makes sense that there's going to be some 
Oh, you're talking about the apoptotic period. Okay, well, one of us, I guess, went to A&M and one of us went to tech because I didn't learn that. <laughs> but really, like, I think it's relieving for a parent or a mentor to know there's not necessarily something totally off with your kid just because they go mm -hmm. through a, a time of sadness or a time where they may have some temporary depression. Their their body is just literally going through a lot and that affects your emotions it affects your mental state and so learning how to cope with those things is going to set them up for success in the future this is a time when that identity development is going to be really tied into them learning the resilience that they have to overcome things and that kind of mood swing is one of those things should we talk about unrealistic expectations of high schoolers sexuality I'm going to let you lead on that because I don't really know where you're going with that. Well, they have more interest in romantic relationships and sexuality. Mm. What is an unrealistic expectation? I think it is unrealistic. That they'd be all prude? <laughs> it's unrealistic to think that your kid is going to be the one teenager who's not thinking about sex or mm -hmm. wanting to date or wanting attention from the girl or guy. You know, that's just unrealistic. They're going to be thinking about it, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Would you say it's unrealistic to think or expect them to not sleep around? Mm. Is this one tripping you up like that, the hat question? <laughs> <laughs> There's just so much room to, for offense on this one. Well, I'll tell you, at our high school ministry... Our, the the leader said, hey, who here wants to be married? One kid out of 20 said they wanted to be married. Mm. One kid said that he wants to sleep with as many women as he can. And this is at a high school youth group mentoring program. Which is, which is the one that's more realistic? in the mind of a high school student? I think my response to that would be, it is unrealistic to think that a kid who may not have been brought up in the same household as you, with the same expectations that you had, values. with the same values, with the same outlook on life, the same view of God, relationship with God, it is unrealistic for you to expect that they are going to naturally fall in line with the things you believe. And so I think it's probably fair that in our mentoring relationships, we're going to run into some things where it, our mentee is going to do some things that we personally think are not okay or are going to be hurtful for them or for other people that aren't the best choices. But I think it's just really important for us to be mindful of where they came from and you know what what information did they have when they made that decision and just be be full of grace for they didn't have the same experience that I that I walked into the room with they don't think about this the way that I do how can I meet them where they're at with what they think about this with love and grace and a desire to just impart wisdom to them, not punish, not shame, not condemn, but bring them up into better choices. Yeah. 
this is the the most interesting part of the unrealistic expectations deal to me because this is the time that kids are becoming adults. They're making huge mm. life decisions and there's a a larger responsibility for the mentor in in these situations to recognize what expectations they have yeah. and how yeah. it could embitter them and frustrate them and cause them to tap out mm. and be like, this kid's not taking my advice. He's not doing what I think he should be doing. Yeah. And yeah, I mean that this is, this is tricky. Yeah, it is. Well, and I think when, you, when I think back on even my life or like some of my friends and family are parents now. And when you think about all the things, even growing up, all the people I'm thinking of grew up in Christian households with these values instilled in them like certain values and morals or whatever they still made mistakes and didn't meet the expectations of their mentors or their parents regarding like drinking or having sex before marriage or some of these like big topics that feel like oh my gosh my kid is off the rails god where are you but in all of them all of the people that I'm thinking of I just have seen how like they were never so off the path that the Lord had for them to where it was just this unredeemable thing all of them have come to a place where it's a part of the testimony of like I was lost and I was making these decisions out of hurt, out of a loneliness, out of just a, an apathy, whatever it was, and that the Lord met them in those things. And so I think that's our response too, is when our kids, when our mentees fail to meet our expectations and we sense this just hurt and just a sadness of, oh, I wanted better for you. Like I want better for you. Our response has to be to meet them where they are because that's where the Lord is going to be in that situation too. Yeah. When, when I think about sex in high school, most of the mentors I know would say that's the worst idea or the worst thing you could ever do. Mm. <clears throat> like that, that's just, if they were to put it in one sentence, they'd be like, that's the worst thing you could, you could do right now. And I like how you just communicated that there's always a reason why. Mm and that there is a need, there's a feeling, there's a desire that's underneath that. And so it's it's not necessarily, the focus shouldn't be on that's the worst thing you could ever do. The focus mm-hmm. should be on, I recognize like the desire and the feeling and what led to that decision. Mm-hmm. And trying to articulate that with a child is very hard. Yeah. Because on the surface, they're not always going to be able to attach that longing and desire for connection and intimacy to sex Mm -hmm. or the novelty of, I mean, just doing something that everybody else is doing. You're curious and having those conversations with, with, with kids that isn't just the teaching like, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't have teaching on a biblical view of sex and marriage and, and all of those things, but does that incorporate an understanding of mm. physiologically what we desire and long for and the reasons that we attach to others, the mm-hmm. reasons we're curious, all, all of those things. I think those conversations are less had than just don't do this. Yeah. Don't do that. Yeah. And so the rules are clear, but the conversation is absent. Yeah. Which is like, that goes right with what we talked about with the hat thing earlier of like with fifth and sixth graders, us as mentees and adults needing to be able to have an answer for the role. I think 
there are a lot of adults out there who have been told that this is this is just the way it is and maybe they have always abided by that rule or maybe they even messed up and there was a lot of guilt that went along with that for them personally but they're just repeating that same rule without ever having thought what is the reason that this was kind of laid out as the way God wanted things to be what is what is really the purpose behind this guideline for life and so I think as mentors as mentors we kind of owe it to our kids to do the searching in ourselves of understanding okay whatever the expectations are that I am giving my kid why are those expectations I'm giving them what is the actual purpose how does this play into the bigger picture of me helping them become all that God made them to be and fulfill their potential that's good I read a book recently from Barnabas Piper. He is the son of John Piper. Stay with me. He wrote a book called The Curious Christian, How Discovering Wonder Enriches Every Part of Life. Mm. And in the book, he detailed, obviously, if if your dad is John Piper, what kind of upbringing do you think you're going to receive? Do you think strict? Do you think... This is the way it is. Yeah. Well, he actually shares in his book that as he was growing up, his dad fostered his curiosity and allowed him to make decisions on what he wanted to watch, what he wanted to read, Mm. what he wanted to listen to. And his dad would always just ask the question, how, his dad would ask the question, why do you, why are you interested in that? Mm. What are you receiving from it? What, what good is coming from this? That's great. And I was like that is not the the image in my head of what John Piper would do. He would be like, you're not watching that. All you're watching is the passion of the Christ. And <laughs> I don't I don't know if kids should even watch that. I don't know. It's pretty violent, but it's also beautiful. That was actually Katie and I's second date. We watched the passion of the Christ. Wow. By the way. And then I told her, I could never love you like Jesus loves you, but wow. I freaking love you. Really going in deep there. Yes. Real quick. Yeah. Our first date was Hotel Rwanda. Wow. That that just <laughs> is exactly the kind of thing I would expect from you guys. But anyways, I, I was really challenged by that, that that encouraging curiosity yeah. while at the same time giving guided discussion questions and helping helping your mentee articulate the reason why mm. they want what they're wanting. Mm. And so even if it's CC's, it's like, where do you want to go to to dinner? The kid says CC's. You say, oh, okay, why? Why do you want to go to CC's? Mm. And maybe they'll say like, oh, I just, I really like when my mom gives me quarters to buy a bouncy ball. Mm. And you'll just recognize so many different connections to why. But even if they don't respond and answer, I think it is an opportunity for them to consider Mm. the reason why. And that process of considering actually helps you take on responsibility for your actions which is great if you're a high school student Mm. thinking about why you're doing the things that you're doing yeah being given the opportunity to do that yeah that's really good good job john way to go pipes (laughs) all right so we've talked about some of the realistic expectations of typical development stages in kids but we are mentoring kids and so a reasonable expectation for some of our kids is that they have endured some trauma in their life and trauma. We just have to recognize that it impacts the brain. And so I'm not going to go into the 
in-depth analysis of how it impacts the brain. But I do just want to hit on just the short version of this. I thought you were, I'm just going to hit on the hippocampus Wait, real quick, <laughs> real quick. That would have been great. Yeah. So trauma, we just have to understand that it, it actually affects the growth of the brain, which is crazy to me to think about because at least when I was growing up, I don't think that there was as much access to that kind of understanding of how going through something really hard, you need to be aware of how that might impact a a child later on in their life and be able to draw those conclusions together of like, oh, um, my kid lost their mom when they were in third grade, but they seem to be doing fine now. You know, no, there needs to be a greater understanding of all the ways that it could come out later and just be prepared for that. So basically the short version is trauma causes the amygdala to grow. The amygdala impacts your response to things. And so a kid who has endured... You said it makes it grow? It makes it grow. Interesting. Yeah. So when it gets bigger, basically your reactions get bigger to things. Whoa. So a kid who has endured trauma, they are going to be more reactionary. They're going to be more sensitive. Their fight-flight response is going to be way easier to trigger. Whoa. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. In addition to that, the hippocampus, we are going to talk about it. But but like the amygdala is like it, the brain is like a muscle. So the part that you're working in more is developing more. And so what you're saying is that if you have adverse childhood experiences, the part of your brain that responds to fear or survival, you are cultivating Yes. A reliance upon it. Yes. So, yes. Just to clarify, that growth is problematic. It's not growth in the way of thinking like... My biceps are getting huge. Right. Because I'm right. doing push-ups. It's, yeah. It's I something that... I don't that... even know it makes your <laughs> biceps grow. I do biannual workouts. But yes, it's not good. It is not good. And there's not very much room in there, I don't expect. So if the amygdala is getting bigger, the other parts probably can't get bigger. Is that fair to say? I mean, I don't... That is fair to it. I don't know if causation equals correlation or whatever the, the term okay, there is, okay. whatever, you know. But yes, so the amygdala is getting bigger. The hippocampus is getting smaller. Yes, so technically you are correct. So the hippocampus affects cognitive functions. And so basically what I'm saying is a kid who has gone through trauma, it would not be unrealistic to expect that he may have more behavior issues and struggle in school more. Mm. So uh, explain more about the hippocampus. I've lost you there. Never really talk about that one. Okay. So the hippocampus, it stores our memory. It You said cognitive skills too or something? Yeah. Well, cognitive functions. And so what what is the tell me. What is a cognitive function? Is that thinking is that making connections between experiences? It's Really, the hippocampus is primarily the memory. And so short-term memory, long-term memory. So a kid who has gone through trauma, I don't know if you've ever heard somebody talk about like blackouts in memory with somebody who's gone through trauma, but there may be literal times of their life that they cannot remember things from those years. But even just in a more day-to-day thing, you might find yourself frustrated that you have explained the process of how you want a kid to do something, whether it's just when you get home from school or when you, when I pick you up, 
this is what I expect. And we have to go over this routine every single time. Like, why can't you get this yet? But for that kid, it may just be there is some short term memory lapses there. And it's not defiance. It's not like a learning disability. It's just they don't care. Right. Right. It's not apathy. Yeah. It, It might be something so outside of their control and something that like they are a victim of, like they are suffering from this consequence of something that had nothing to do with their choices. Wow. So for us to just have empathy in that and understand they are having to overcome some things that other kids at their, at their age, at their grade are not having to overcome. So I'm going to look at this kid and see the fight in him and the strength in him rather than look at him and just see, why can't you be like the other kids at your age? I don't understand. That's really good, Beth. Mentors, it is not fair to assume they don't care. Mm. Yeah, that's good. I need that. Mm. Yeah, and then the last part is the development of the prefrontal cortex. So You're just going to talk about the whole brain, aren't you? I said this is the short version. <laughs> Basically, the prefrontal cortex gets shut down. It, it's put in lockdown like the amygdala guards the rest of the brain and so if that is bigger and more reactive it signals to the rest of the brain like when when something occurs that might trigger a response let's say that a kid is sitting with you and you correct him on something and his reaction is intense like it's way bigger deal to him than it needed to be and that is his amygdala going off and he is going in fight or flight right then and so he's either going to shut down or he's going to blow up that's the amygdala. And so when that happens, the prefrontal cortex, which um, relates to helping you make good decisions, make good decisions or develop skills, all of a sudden that is not in the picture at all. And it is just this primal survival brain running the thing. <laughs> the survival brain is in the driver's seat in that moment. I'm a little confused. Let me see if I'm picking up what you're throwing down. Okay. Are you saying that the prefrontal cortex is like calling the shots, but may not be doing a great job and gives gives up its authority to other parts of the brain instead of making decisions? And so when it's underdeveloped, your brain is run by your amygdala or run, run by things that aren't made for decision-making I I don't yeah I mean the way that it was explained to me whenever I went through trainings and classes on this was thinking of all of I didn't go to brain class (laughs) all right skip that one (laughs) was if we're thinking about these three parts like the White House the amygdala is the security gate at the front this is the way it was explained to me okay you asked for clarity (laughs) Can't you just use a, a sport analogy? Like you're gonna, use Luka you're gonna understand. You're gonna understand, I okay. promise. Okay, the amygdala is the security gate at the front. It okay. controls if you're if you're getting past that point or not. It's the shutdown if they if they perceive a threat. So the hippocampus is like the history that you can just like walk around that White House and there are artifacts and things. So it's all of that stored information. The prefrontal cortex is like the president himself, and so he is the one that makes the decisions. He is the one calling the shots. But if that amygdala is shutting down, it's like 
you're not getting access to the president. Wow. Okay. Whoa. I don't know how to make that a sport analogy. <laughs> no, that's cool. So, I mean, and to, to further it, it's, it's like you're tying the hands of the decision maker. Yes. And he can't get... And also those memories, too. Like, you're mm. not getting in the house. You're not getting the president. Whoa. It stops here. Whoa. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I can think of immediately, like, 15 examples of when I have been sitting in front of a kid and I am looking at him and I am like, it is like there is, there are crisis alarms going on in his head. And I am thinking, this is such a small thing that I just needed to talk to you about real quick. But all of a sudden, it is like military. Code orange. Yes. That's what's going on, though. And so in that moment, I can't be frustrated with that kid because he is in a defense mechanism that he had to learn for whatever reason to survive something that happened to him. And all I can do in that situation is just have empathy and patience. And that works. So the the encouragement for, for mentors, because you might be thinking of what your kid has experienced or what you're currently experiencing with your mentee and just are like, well, is it always going to be like this? And it's not. Like Research has shown that the brain is so much more flexible than we ever thought it was. And so with the proper support and relationships and just learning coping skills, overcoming things, the brain has a desire to heal itself. Like God designed our brains to seek healing. And so eventually those neurons can rewire, refire, whatever it is. And as we develop and teach patterns of a better way of doing something, a better habit to develop, the more they walk on those roads, that's going to be the one that becomes like the highway for, for decisions and information to process in that kid's brain. And that old way of thinking is going to be like, you know, the old trail that eventually just all the grass and brush grows over and they don't go down that one anymore. It might still be there and they may like take a detour every now and then, but it's primarily that you're going to be building new highways for them to travel on. That's so good. That's why I love the brain. You do love the brain. It's hilarious. <laughs> your brain will never see itself. Does that make your brain sad? I've seen my brain on an MRI. Does that count? Oh, I guess that does count. <laughs> so if the amygdala is the security gate, the hippocampus is the White House pictures, paintings, declaration of independence <laughs> behind glass, and the president is the prefrontal cortex, who, who are, who, who's the mentor? Hmm. That's a really good question. Is the mentor the National Guard? <laughs> or are we the protesters? Oh, I guess that... Are we diplomats? Or are we the, the lawn care? I, yeah, I don't... Maybe I'm... Go I'm ta am I taking this too far? I think you're taking it too far. <laughs> Every metaphor breaks down eventually. We are Air Force One. <laughs> Mentors are probably like the happy tourist who just wants to come in and and learn and experience <laughs> that yeah because mentors are trying to take a tour yeah of memories and understandings mm -hmm. and seeing their perspective and how they view the world it's a yeah. pretty good analogy but most tourists are stuck at the gate it's true yeah 
guess you need to be less threatening. <laughs> Which isn't working out right now in, in our nation's capital at the moment. Wow, you really went there. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, it was unrealistic of us to expect to do this entire series in one episode, which calling it even a series maybe was the telltale foreshadowing sign that mm. that we were going to do multiple episodes. Wow. Did we call it a series? I don't know, but now I want to go back and listen to see if we did because it was yeah. like our brains knew what we didn't know yet. Yeah. <laughs> Unconsciously, so, it was telling us. So next week, we are going to talk about... Reaching expectations so setting expectations that are within reach but that require your mentee to grow a little bit towards and then relational so how setting expectations and helping your mentee reach them is a relational process so good not too high not too low just right but also relational Mm -hmm. it's good so join us next week thank you beth for all of your insight thank you steven for being my guest today (laughs) this is your (laughs) podcast now you totally <laughs> you totally took it from me. No, it's great. You can mentor. <laughs>